It's a show about change. Welcome to Bob's Basement. Here's your host, Bob Willett. Welcome to Bob's Basement. And this is my first time welcoming three guests at once into the basement, virtually, of course. But this is a a very special edition of Bob's Basement. I'm going to call it the Edge 102 series. I will uh, introduce my guests in just a moment, but I will tell you kind of the thought process of how I got into doing this series. I hope it turns into a series of conversations with people who have an affiliation with CFMY, also known as 102.1 The Edge, also known as Edge 102. In 1998, the uh, station that was 102.1 The Edge became Edge 102. And that happens to be the year that I started working at that station as an intern for the Humble and Fred show. And these three gentlemen who are joining me now are three people who I dealt with. And actually, uh, Phil Evans, who's uh, here, he was the first guy to hire me. Rob Johnson, who is here, I used his studio um, while uh, producing stuff for the Humble and Fred show. And Jim McCourty was in charge of all the production on the station. I learned so much from these three gentlemen. And I am very, very happy to uh, welcome them all here. Gentlemen, uh, so we're talking promotions and production for The Edge in the 90s here in Bob's basement. Thanks so much for coming on, guys. No, I'm looking forward to it, Bob. Thank you for having us. Oh, I'm really happy. Uh, you know, I'm really happy to do this. It is, like I said, it's somewhat self-indulgent because it's the opportunity to talk to some people who had a big influence on me and my career, but also to nerd out about radio because the reason that I thought about this particular era, not just because I started at the station, I wanted to talk to guys who maybe people who listen to radio and aren't in the business don't even know that you guys exist in the in the in the in the grand scheme of how radio is put together. A lot of people wouldn't know what a promotions director does or what a production director does. And you were there for a lot of years. The three I would like we should go over the combined years, the three of you yeah. at <laughs> CFNY. Um, you guys were there when it went from CFNY or FM 102 to 102.1 The Edge to Edge 102 back to 102.1 The Edge. And I wanted to find out how that all happened. But I think I'll start. I'm going to start with Phil because he's the only promotions guy here. Phil Evans, a.k.a. Captain Phil, if you are a fan of CFNY. Uh, Phil Evans was the promotions director at CFNY. Phil, why don't you tell uh, the listeners about yourself, what you did at The Edge and what you're doing now? Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Bob. Uh, lovely to be here. Uh, lovely being in your basement. Um, I was there from 1986 to 2002. So I cover um, from CFNY right up until it goes back to 102.1 The Edge. I leave just before it goes to 102.1 The Edge. And I started there. The, the reason I'm Captain Phil, just a bit of background, is because um, I got a call one day. I was working at CJSS in Cornwall, the Seaway Valley's music leader. Um, and I got a call from an old pal at Ontario place that told me that uh, the promotion director at CFNY was looking for someone who could drive boats and go on the radio at the same time. And uh, I was a, a Ryerson Polytech RTA grad, radio television. And in the summers, my job was to drive tour boats. And then I also drove boats at Ontario place with bands on them. So at the end, I was at the end of my last year driving boats at Ontario. Place. I was so sad because I thought, um, I wish I had a job where I could talk on the radio and drive boats. And then within six months, I got the call. That being it, so I started when it was CFNY. 
um, and followed the evolution all the way through. Some, some of the iterations lasted longer. Uh, some of them were fairly uh, short in tenure. And uh, we'll get back to some of those iterations and what brought them on. But one of the conversations that led to me thinking about doing this show was with you. You and I were kind of uh, Facebook messaging with each other about the impact that this little radio station, CFNY, The Edge, had given what the numbers were throughout its entire existence. It's got this cult-like status, but there were like CKFM, you know, Mix 99.9. Chum FM, like these stations, Q107 had way bigger numbers, had way more listeners, but the amount of online fodder that's out there about CFMY and the David Marsden days and Deadly Headley and Live Earl Jive and all these different people, it's, it is, it has reached cult status. And it was the conversation with you that really made me think about this. It's a large cult, um, but, uh, and, and I noticed it. Thanks for pointing that out, Bob. I, I, I noticed it, um, because I'm an avid consumer of podcasts. I'm, I'm all in on podcasts now. Mind you, I only listen to six or seven overall, some political, some entertainment. And then I started noticing like the content on anyone I followed in the industry. It, it was like um, watching bookings on, on uh, uh, Conan O'Brien or something. Or, and then the guest goes to Johnny Carson. And then the, jet, the guest goes to David Letterman. Like every episode of a podcast that I've listened to in the last, Six weeks, eight weeks has been about CF and Y. And if they're all on different angles, some are on the, you know, the technical side, the personalities, all, all kinds of different topics. But I'm thought to myself, that's an overwhelming number of people talking about one little station. Um, you know, and I'm not debating uh, how groundbreaking it could be at times, but you know, there were big stations. Q107 did a lot of stuff. They put like 70,000 people in a park for Black Crows. But it's the things about CFNY that people remember right back to the personalities. Uh, I don't know why. Snapshots in time. I always say snapshots in time. Um, that's an awful lot for it, uh, That I think, for, from my standpoint. Um, but there's obviously some other things where uh, it, it went above and beyond um, being, the you know, the little radio station that could. That's absolutely true. And Jim McCordy joins us. He, uh, at the time when I met you in 98, I think you were the head of production for the station. Is that correct? Uh, probably creative director. Creative director. Writers okay. and production. Okay. So Jim McCordy, uh, at that, what, what year did you join the Edge CFNY? What was your background? I spent pretty much the 90s with the Edge. So it was 91. Uh, started in Brampton as a part-time producer and then moved up to being creative director. And then uh, they assumed Q107 and Mojo and, and we were uh, working with a creative team across all of those radio stations. But uh, yeah, through the 90s and was responsible for the imaging. Um, so the IDs, the sound, the branding of the radio station. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, NY never had huge QM, but it always had a huge TSL, uh, time spent listening. So people were listening for long, long periods of time, but we didn't have the amount of people. Uh, and I think that built some of the, the, uh, the fever that Phil mentions, you know, it was, it was something that was always on, uh, and kind of really engaged people at that level. A passionate, passionate group of people who listen to that station. Probably the most passionate of any radio station I've ever worked at, and the, and people still refer to it 
as whatever they listen to at the time. You know, like some people still call it Edge 102. Some people still call it CFMY. Some people call it 102.1 The Edge. Some people even call it FM 102, which it was for a very short amount of time. Uh, that's a funny one that you, you bring up, um, Bob. Uh, FM 102. So <clears throat> I mentioned just before we just started the conversation that I have a library of old live tapes from the CFNY uh, FM 102 years, not the Edge years, but the CFNY years. And there's a, one particular Canada Day Festival, 89, where you can see all the announcers going on stage, forcing themselves to say FM 102 <laughs> and not CFNY. Because at that point in 89, they had, they had minimized the use of CFNY both on the radio and in the logos and gone from CFNY, the spirit of radio, to FM 102 Modern Rock. So I want to get to that moment and a couple other moments. I want to talk about why that happens, but I also want to introduce Robbie J. Rob Johnston, who um, was at the time when I started, uh, like I said, you were the first studio I ever used. It was next to the Humble, there was the main, uh, it, uh, this is at One Dundas West uh, in the old Eaton Center, and uh, your studio was right next to kind of the main, um, the main on-air studio, which was connected to the Humble and Fred studio. And my first job was coming into your studio in in the morning before you were there and i had recorded television shows on vhs tapes i uh, think like that and i used them for what we call bumpers you know or uh, splitters i would i would i would record those onto mini disc or dat tape at the time and i use your studio for that and i and then i i, I used your studio for that and then making the daily promo and different things like that what year did you join the edge or cfny and what, and how did you get in there well, Bob, one of the things I always liked about you is you kept the studio clean when you were done using it. You took all your crap out of it, which was it great. I never, I never found a coffee cup in there that wasn't mine, so I appreciate that. So thanks for that, Bob. Um, I started um, in the fall of 89 as an intern um, because I wanted to go to university or college and pursue this. And one of the schools I was looking at was Ryerson. And they required you to have some experience in it. So I thought, oh, okay, sure. And then somebody, a friend of mine said, well, why don't you give CFNY a call? Apparently they take interns. So I gave CFNY a call and they take interns. And the first person I started working with was answering the all request Nooner phone line and taking requests for Alan Cross. 32 years later, I'm still in a way working with Alan. I, I, did, I did promotions work. I did um, overnight ops work. I did all kinds of odd jobs between... Um, you know, 1990 and 94, 95. And then I remember 90, end of 94, I was, I kind of hit this precipice. I was like, I graduated Ryerson. I worked there for a year and I was like, I either got to leave Toronto and go somewhere else, or I'm going to hang it out here and see what happens. And I was bugging Jim all the time. And he, you know, for production gigs, production roles, helping out, doing all this stuff. And on a Friday the 13th, he left a note for me that said, hey, uh, Craig Venn is going to leave. I'll, do you wanna, I'll give you a shot at it. This is January 95. So Jim uh, foolishly took a gamble on me, and I ended up doing production work. So while Jim did all the cool imaging stuff, he gave me all the commercials to work on and the commercials to do. <laughs> which was and fun. all the world album premieres. That's right. And you know, I, I, had to, and interviewing I did have to go to Seattle to do an interview. Um, uh, Bob, what's the name of that band you like? All right, enough already. Yes, you okay. interviewed Pearl Jam. You were yeah, right. so we had to go to there for that. Anyway, so so I did production work and and I did a bit of imaging work. And then when Jim left to go to London, I took over the uh, 
creative direction for the cluster for Q Edge and 640. And then I remained there until the summer of 2015. So it was a 25 year uh, run until. Yeah, finally... So let's, let's tally up the years between the three <laughs> of you with maybe just with Chorus Entertainment. Should we do that or just at the edge? Which Well, yeah, I would say just at the edge. Yeah, let's tally up how many. So you were how many years at the edge at CFNY? Robbie J. 25. Uh, Jim McCordy at the edge? Just the edge was 10. 10, so it's 35. And uh, Captain Phil, how many years for you? 16, but they were the important ones. <laughs> <laughs> so like 50 plus years of combined uh, uh, um, uh, tenure at CFNY here. And I, what, I, what is so interesting is like, you guys had such an influence on the sound of that station and people don't know it. Like there are a lot of people who probably don't even know it. Like, it, like people who love that station. So I want to go back to your point, Phil about the year, the 89 Canada Day show, and you can see all the announcers be, you know, okay, don't say CFMY, don't say CFMY. You're in promotions at that point. You're three or four years in. What Are you the promotions director by that point? I was the on-site promotion guy. So I was... Okay. Um, You're in charge I, of on-site. Wrangli I was wrangling announcers to get them on stage. I was putting up signs. Uh, I was taking questions from the people. And this is particularly about Canada. I was working at events. I was going to concerts. I was the uh, the boots on the ground of the radio station when we were out in the community. So, um, and the biggest, every year, the biggest event would obviously be the Canada Day one, where um, I think three or four times consecutively we introduced new station names and logos. <laughs> Which eventually became Edgefest, right? What we're talking about, the Canada Day show. That's correct. It became yeah. rebranded as Edgefest. So maybe we'll fast forward. I want to I want to fast forward to a time where where you were the promotions director, Phil. The whole impetus for this conversation was the move from because it was one hundred two point one The Edge in ninety seven. I could still remember the Humble and Fred number one in ninety seven CD, which I was a fan of, and I I had it, and that's how I started. As you know, my story is I was my wife actually, my girlfriend at the time was listening to the Humble and Fred show, called me up and said. Chicken Shawarma is leaving the Humble and Fred show to go produce live in Toronto with George Strombolopoulos and Kim Hughes. They're looking for a new intern. You should be that intern. And I ended up being coming Bingo Bob because of that conversation. But at the so I can still remember, I still own the number one in 97. And it has the 102.1, the Edge logo. Fast forward to 98, the radio station is Edge 102. How did that happen? Where does that start in the radio world and why? Well, I'll speak to the launch of the Edge from okay. CFNY. Okay, perfect. There was a, a sale of the radio station and a management shift, and they brought in uh, uh, two sharpshooters from uh, Alberta uh, to take over the radio station. Um, and you know, they uh, they were, certainly were characters, and um, in some cases problematic, but they were brilliant brand strategists. So they came in and identified that what was at the time, I believe, I, I, you would call it an eclectic radio station, not even an alternative. It was eclectic. It would go from playing Mozart at 8.15 in the morning to um, uh, Fishbone. Um, <laughs> like it was all over the place. So the, um, uh, the, new, the new leadership team came in and uh, they identified that this was a at the time, the format was called Modern Rock, that this was a modern rock station. Um, at the same time, and I'll, I'll open it to, to input from, from the other guys, because I don't know the exact timing, um, a consulting company had launched a format called The Edge in the States. And they didn't want to buy it, because they didn't want to spend the money on it. It was in Dallas. What's that? Was it in uh, Dallas? 
Was the very first uh, yeah, one? Yeah, Jacobs, well? Jacobs Media. Jacobs Media, and I think right? it was in Dallas was the first one. Well, the other, the other thing, too, Phil, is this was the era. This was like grunge was happening. Like the world was blowing up in this Not format. quite yet. Uh, it was really? on its way. Yeah. It was on its way. It was, the door was opening, and I think they probably saw six months ahead. I'm going to say sure. that. So um, they said it's, it's a modern rock, and they, they, it's a modern rock station, um, and they had followed the, the launch of The Edge in uh, Dallas and the format, but they didn't want to pay the money to buy it. So they invented their own Edge. Um, they brought in a, a brand specialist, and we went down a list of everything that we would do as the edge and everything we wouldn't do at the edge. So by the end of this weekend jam session of branding, they could throw out something like, Hey, are you the guys at the pet show? And we'd say, no, Hey, are you the guys at the tattoo show? We'd say yes. Oh. Cause you would, they had built the brand so that you could call things. You could call things based on your knowledge of building the brand and living with it. And at that time, uh, they came up with the CFNY 102.1, the leading edge logo. Yeah. The idea was always to have people call it the edge, but they wanted to bring people gently from the CFNY era to what the end result, the edge era was. And you have to remember at this time, this was also when uh, much music was a very powerful entity and they had great branding and they had uh, everything that you saw about much music said much music and they wanted to be there. And um, I, and I think they 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 got there for the long time. Sure, and it, oh, eventually. I mean, again, I, I'm not. I'll I'll always freely admit I am not one of those cool kids that was listening to the Edge at four. I was 14 in 1990. I wasn't. In, I wasn't into like I wasn't alternative. I wasn't cool. I was listening to Top 40 radio. Like I I listened to C, CFTR and Tom Rivers and Mike Cooper and all that. So I knew of the Edge and like, but it was never part of my world. But I do know that everybody everybody referred to it, it like i said it, it is still referred to as the edge generally speaking so consultant company comes in they say we're going to change our name when does it come down to production that hey oh by the way we're changing the name of the radio station and what are you going to do about it as the imaging the head of creative or the imaging guy jim mccourty so it comes like that phil comes <laughs> down the, phil comes and says we're going to change the name of the radio station um, you know, I, I always had the, no, it wasn't me, Jim. I'm a messenger at the best. <laughs> I was a messenger. Oh yeah. No, no. Cause the, the brand specialist at the top said, here's what we're going to do. Um, and it was communicated to me that there is going to be a stage, right? We're going to do the leading edge. Then we're going to move to something else and we're going to move to something else. Um, it, which was great because it was very creative and very challenging, but they also came down and said, we're not going to have an image voice. We're not going to pay to have the big booming station voice. Really? Um, so when you're creating these incarnations of the edge, you have to do it without, uh, you know, a, a huge voice that you normally have kind of hosting and, and uh, anchoring all of those IDs and promos. So we had to write and create knowing that we were going to use all of our announcers and, you know, a couple of, we had Norm Spencer, a gentleman who did do some voice work for us, but we didn't have a core voice. And that really led to the writing that we were able to do. Um, but it's like any other client, they come down and say, Hey, we want to change our creative. And then we, we do it. I find well, that amazing. That was one of the, that was one of the great things too, Jim, is the fact that, <clears throat> you know, you'd be going through these, you'd be going through the IDs on air on the overnights, for instance, when I used to do it, and like you'd look and you go, 
oh, there's May, there's Alan, there's um, Howard, there's Marty. You know, you could choose different IDs to put in and to match the kind of texture you wanted to fit in with the music you were playing. It wasn't just, here's big announcer station announcer voice guy was like, you know what? Martin's going to sound pretty cool over top of this, or May's going to sound pretty cool over top of that. It was like, it was, it was a paradigm shift really in the, in the theory of how to do imaging. Well, yeah, it, tr it, it truly was. It hadn't been done anywhere else, right? You had the edge uh, in Dallas and one came into Buffalo and then you had a couple other modern rocks and they were all just based off of the rock station image where the leading edge was really different and it allowed us to pull the receptionist in and get him or her to read some lines use the the uh the listeners as much as we could which is again was groundbreaking at the time um so yeah it really it was a joy to produce because it, it just you could pick the best line from any number of people but when you're recording onto analog tape and cutting on eight track <laughs> it became a lot of work I was going to say that's a, yeah, the technology at the time didn't allow, it's not like now where basically everybody can, you can edit audio on your phone now if you wanted to, and it's pretty good quality. You could actually put it on the air pretty fast. Um, doing that without any, uh, doing that in the analog world with reel to reel and whatnot. Would what, one of my favorite things was back then we used to have CDRs that we would play in the control room with the IDs on it. And the CDRs, it was a Studer CDR and each disc was about 25 or 30, 1992 So today that's what? probably 45, 50 bucks. And you had one go at it. And if you screwed it up, the disc was done. So I remember one batch of IDs that said, don't play track one because track one was a scratch track. It was broken. <laughs> it's like, you always had to start at track two because that's where the IDs started. I will also say that in the days before you could burn CDs and I was DJing, um, I was DJing on the side at, at, at the Phoenix uh, opposite the, the live to air actually and you still had one of those in your studio. I would go in at night and I would record songs from the from the DCS, the old school on air system and record and do the exact same thing. But you were literally recording like you were off a cassette tape. It was in real time is how you recorded those, ID, those IDs or whatever it was. When I first started, my first my my first full-time job at the station or my first job at the station was working for Phil Evans doing, uh, you know, promotion work, standing outside of the horseshoe on a Tuesday night, handing out humble and Fred condoms and whatnot. But my other job that I got paid for was to produce Martin streaks live to airs and, uh, on Friday nights from the kingdom, Saturday nights from the Phoenix and Sunday nights from whiskey Saigon. And my IDs, we're on a box. Now I'm going to get really inside uh, on a, on a Geats box. Geats built the box for all of the, uh, and all my IDs were on, uh, were on like these burned CDs just like that. And even, even in the, even as, as late as the early two thousands, we were still playing IDs off of burned CDs, not even burned recorded CDs like that at that, at that time. So you guys go and you, 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 this, well, first of all, we could talk about the anti-corporate, um, agenda that what that cfny stood for to the listeners prior to this era like there was there th during this era there was a there was a moment when you got like when there was top 40 music being played on the edge or on cfny and and there was a lot of uh, a lot of, a lot of negative feedback about that at the time but these guys come in you become a modern rock station and you slowly start this build towards getting rid of CFMY and becoming the leading, you know, the leading edge and then ultimately becoming the edge. The plan is a X amount of year plan. And as that's going along, you guys are all developing in your career. 
And at what point do you go and say, you know what, we do need a, an imaging voice, for instance? At what point do you like? Uh, what are what are management meetings in the early to mid '90s like at that time? Good well, times. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm also gonna say that they weren't so much meetings as kind of walking by someone in the hall and and handing something off, saying, "Hey, uh, what do you think if we do a couple of these things?" I don't think they were structured as much as ten people around a table. They were two or three people. And Jim, maybe uh, that's what I remember. Yeah, you know, you mentioned anti-corporate off the top, and it was it was uh, a small group of people uh, that had this this opportunity and this 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 flamethrower. Um, because really, there was a lot of discussion, Phil, about turning it to AC. Right? Yeah. It changed ownership, and they paid a lot for it. And this was maybe ninety ninety one. Uh, the new owners paid a lot for the frequency, for the stick, for the opportunity to broadcast in, in Toronto. Uh, and, you know, the big money format was AC. Uh, and so the team and, and the program and, and, and general manager were able to sort of bring this modern rock format that was breaking in a number of places. I think was in Vancouver, Phil, at the time. What's that? Wasn't Seafox was already modern rock. Uh, no, no, they were uh, they're an active rock station. Always, uh, still are kind of thing. Right um, at the time, though, strange that you mention it. Um, there was the Coast Eight Hundred out here, which was David Marsden's project after CFNY. Right. It was on an AM frequency, so it didn't last that long. But and well, I, I mean, tell you, we could actually we could probably keep going back to a theme of the change of everything happening with with the, the technology changing, right? Um, with the, the, and with the circumstances changing, a lot of people don't know that, you know, some of the reasons that, that CFNY was so unique and so cool, they had to do what they had to do because of their license requisitions. Like they were like, you know what I mean? Like you had to do the amount of spoken word that you did and do those magazine shows, especially in the nine, in the eighties, all those things were mandated by the CRTC. When those went away, the station became "quote unquote" more corporate. I, I, I think that's a fair statement. Or I would yeah. say more focused. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, yeah, they knew exactly what you know. You you go talk about playing Mozart into Fishbone, like that's not a sustainable no business plan. <laughs> that that was um that was an interim group. This is all about ownership and new people coming in, right? So there's the original CFMY, which stops basically in 88 and becomes uh, an alternative top 40 hybrid. Um, and, and that was they needed. They wanted more audience. They, that's what they did it for. They put things in high rotation. They put Madonna next to Depeche Mode. And uh, when I was sitting in the boom box at the CNE, people would ask me for pour some sugar on me. And I didn't even know what the song was. I had never heard of it. Uh, that's how far out of the top 40 world I was. So... After that group, uh, they sell to McLean Hunter, which makes it into a massive eclectic station, which is where they've got Mozart next to the Tone Loke, Tone next to, you know, it's all over the place. And then the next group comes in, which is what events up, ends up being chorus. And they're the ones who focus it on modern rock. Right. So let's go to the moment. So you've now, you've, you've completed the transition from, 
CFNY, FM 102, all the way, you, the leading edge to the edge. In 96, 97, you're the edge. Everybody called you 102.1 the edge. Everybody called CFNY that. Why the hell did they go to edge 102? What's that story? They wanted the station to be called the edge in common parlance. So they gradually took pieces away from the, um, from at least the logo and everything so that if you look, uh, sorry, and they, they won't see this because, but you're wearing the edge one or two hat I am, and I the know. edge is highlighted in a brand new color there, a yellow. Yeah. I can't remember what the number is, but the, um, the purple <laughs> on the edge one or two is Pantone two, six, eight. If you ever wondered, that's how solid we were on the branding. So they, they called the cheese logo. I think at that point, the yeah, it, it, it looks like cheese logo. Yeah. It does yeah. look like cheese. Um, and, and it's all, uh, you know, from my side, from a promotion and marketing standpoint, it's about getting people to call it the edge and to remember it. Okay. So well, that's the thing right there, Phil, because this was back in the diary days where it was all about recall and you had to write it down the diary. So what are you going to remember? The edge, yeah, edge or whatever. Is there any, was there anything to the fact that there was 103.3 the edge? Was there any, like, was there, was there any consideration there uh, with the name change or anything? I don't think so. They weren't oh, no. really a, a huge influence. Uh, you know, they you could kind of get them maybe in in yeah. in uh, in Burlington and stuff, but they weren't a huge sort of competitor, right? It, it was Q107. Yeah, um, that was the competitor, and I think part of the 102 was also that um, people refer to the radio station by the dial position. Yeah. So I was listening to 107. I was listening to 102, and you you still had analog tuning so it wasn't always 102.1 in your digital it looked like it was on 102 yeah. and if you wrote that down in your ballot and your in your numerus or bbm ballot we'd still get credit for it so a lot of what we tried to highlight was the frequency and the imaging so the change from 102.1 the edge to edge 102 was part of the big plan yeah 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 it was part of the evolution of getting it as jim says remembering the where we are on the dial and calling us by the name of it. Funny thing, before that, you go, um, when they leave FM 102 Modern Rock, that was describing what they did. This was describing what we were. And at what point, Jim, as the production, uh, as the creative director, do you decide that we do need a, an imaging voice? Uh, never, really. In my time there, we... we we were lucky. We had a great voice come in and a gentleman named Jamie Watson. <laughs> so he's a internationally you know, recognized and just a talent. So he came in from Calgary and I was able to make him a predominant voice right. and make use of, of, of his talents. And we still had Norm on the side, but then you had Howard Glassman and then, you know, Kim and, and all these huge may was, was also out there making money as, as a voice artist. So there wasn't really the need to have uh, an image voice in, in my time. It was always just people who happened to be around. And I mean, and Jamie Watson was in the creative department. If, if, if people want to know, he was a creative writer. And you would, if you have, if you have children, uh, he is a voice on True, the cartoon. My uh, daughters love his character. Uh, he's Bartleby on True. If you know, like, and, and then you also had guys like Pete Cunio and Carmen Melville and, uh, uh, Oh, Grant. There's so many guys, so many talented writers that could also voice things for you. And I, and those things, because I find, you know, so later on, I'm just a kid when I start there. I'm like in my early 20s and I'm hanging out and I'm learning and I'm trying to sponge everything up. 
And I'm, fast forward, I'm at a certain point, I, I become a program director of a radio station. And I, and, and I can remember having this moment of, being, of knowing how important imaging is because people don't even realize that it's like that when it's strong, but they, they realize when it's bad, that's for sure. But when it's really good, sometimes it just goes by. And I always find that like the best imaging is it's the radio station itself talking to you. It is the, it is the brand talking to you. Robbie. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the things too, is that one of the problems is that people would get imaging voices and they still do this, um, who are not in the building. They have imaging people on stage that they don't understand. They don't know the feel, the vibe, or anything about what the station stands for and what is it about. When you have people who are in the halls or you can pick up and have on the phone like a guy like Norm and say, hey, can you come in next Wednesday for two hours? He lives and he listens to the radio station and he, know what it's, he knows what it's like. So they understand the station and you can, you can work with them one-on-one -on -one and get the sound and the vibe and the read that you want. When you're dealing with somebody where you send off a script and you say, here's what I need you to do. They've got 15 other stations they're dealing with. They're just, it's sausage factory time, right? No disrespect. It's just, they're trying to make money and you're, you're part of their process. There isn't that relationship of understanding of here's what I want to do. This is one of the greatest things I ever learned from Jamie Watson is that you do multiple takes because you never know where it's going to be and you feel it out, you feel it out, you feel it, and boom, there you have it, right? And I remember when I would send stuff off to people in other markets, I would sometimes read it as I wanted them to interpret it because they have to understand what I'm trying to get out of them. They're not going to know because they're not there. So by, you know, by Jim using the people who were in the hall or discovering people in the hall, you had the ability for them to know and understand what the station was about. And they felt it and they learned it and they loved it as well. And you felt that passion come through in everything. At a certain point during this, while it's Edge 102, um, Chorus Entertainment, Shaw Communications becomes Chorus Entertainment, and they go and buy WIC. And WIC is Q107. So here we are working for the Edge, and all of a sudden, we're in the same building as Q107, which I got to say, as a kid who grew up in Toronto, at the time, that felt weird, man. It felt really weird because it was so weird. I remember it felt like you were, remember that beginning in 2001, I think, when they moved in? It felt like you moved in with a stepbrother or, or something like that. It's the only way I can describe it, not that I ever have. But it was like, okay, we're living here. It's cool. Don't touch my shit. Don't <laughs> touch my stuff. You're there. We're here. We're cool. Let's just get on with stuff. Because you're right. We were the com we were the competitors. And I remember in the mid-90s, the time it felt like we won. Because at one point, Q was playing Oasis. And it was like, yes, they we won. We did it. We, we held our ground. We held what we were going to do. We stayed too true to our beliefs. We didn't go and play Aerosmith. They came and played Oasis. Yeah. And it was pure rock at one pure. time. You remember it was pure rock at that yeah. time, right? I remember them playing, you say Oasis. The one that stood out to me was hearing Offspring. On, and uh, for right? me, it's Nine Inch Nails. Did you hear Nine Inch Nails nine. on cue? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so where did, how does your role change during that, Phil? Because now you've become, you, you go from being the guy who's driving the boat to, uh, to becoming the promotions director of this, you know, big corporate conglomerate essentially. And you, and, and I, I had a working relationship with you through this. I worked with you and, um, I, I will tell a little story of, of a fine uh, moment. I had a, I had the vehicle because I would use the vehicles to drive the, uh, to go to the club gigs. Right. And one time I backed into something and I blew the back window out of one of the edge vehicles. And I remember just thinking, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm like, whatever. I'm 22, 23 years old. And you didn't, 
bat an eye, you were like, well, first you, oh, well, first you pulled my leg. First you were like, oh, you're fucking dead. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> you turned to me like, how could you do that? And then you said, you know what? Let's go look at. It. And then I took it to some auto glass place, and the insurance took. And you like, and and it didn't phase you at all. And it gave me this great <laughs> sense of it, it's it's resonated with me, Phil. It's stuck. It's stuck with me. <laughs> I, I'm glad that it stuck with you. What year was that? It would have been 99, maybe. Um, okay, so in 1987, I destroyed a station cruiser. So I don't, that's why <laughs> I commiserate with you and everything's always covered by insurance. Um, <laughs> Did I ever tell you, Phil, about the time where I was working the boot box at the CNE and I went to close one of the windows and it smashed in my hand and broke into a million pieces? <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell do I do now? So I went, took the window out and found somebody on the Queensway in Mississauga and they put a new window in for me. And you did oh, a that's save for it yourself? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm rephrase a, your question there, Bob. Uh, promotion as a promotions director, I, 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 you know, as this, this change happens, um, in that the comp you're working for the company that buys another company, you're working for chorus entertainment. They buy WIC, which owns Q107 and AM640. And this is what gives birth to Mojo Radio for the old Humble and Fred fans and all that. Um, you're involved heavily in that as the promotions director. You're you're right up there with guys like Stu Myers and JJ Johnson, uh, Hal Blackadar, all these guys. How does your job change during that? So here's an interesting thing. Stu Myers, who is basically the architect of the edge, was huge on focus. It was about what you were doing. He would take care of the competitive moves. You would take care of focusing on on doing what you what you did, and and again because I had been there at the beginning with the um, with the uh, the branding exercises and and you know being involved in the workshops where you'd know the music that you should play and the music you shouldn't play. You'd know the events you should be doing. You'd know the contests you should be doing. You'd know that whatever you did on the radio, utilizing that very rare real estate between songs is something that had to be 100% on brand. And so that's why our contest ended up being um, very, and we're big, you know, Humble and Fred were our, our um, uh, flag bearers. So everything we did, whether when it wasn't focused around music, was about Humble and Fred. Uh, tough contests, uh, crazy stuff on the street. Um, they got arrested for handing out French fries. At, at, um, that wasn't planned, but they, it worked out at, at Nathan Phillips Square. Um, so we just, is that edgy? Is, you know, the Jason Barr, uh, Danger Boy, Jason Barr, set up a petting zoo in the little parkette next to the Eaton Center because he liked goats and he wanted to pet goats. And that was on so, brand. Yeah, it was. It, it was Humble and Fred's petting zoo. And Jason on Danger, a cross. Yeah crazy oh yeah and uh, <laughs> uh you know you would you would back them up a hundred percent and um it, it got us through some some kind of rough times as as rob johnson mentioned um <laughs> um humble and fred went down a, a very problematic easter route one year um where they uh i i had i ordered them chocolate jesus to give away i was um, part of that yep and uh, and and they were going to put Danger Boy on a cross, and you know it's funny. You can do almost anything you want, but don't take on religion in the mainstream. Um, so when we got, we actually did Danger Boy on a, a cross, and it was a life-size cutout uh, cutout of Alan Cross with his arms outstretched. So it was Danger Boy on a cross. Uh, they didn't do it again. 
No, we did not <laughs> do that again. Although we did, I think we did chocolate Jesus more than once. Yeah, that was a good one. We, I can remember going around and giving away chocolate Jesus uh, yeah. with with Danger Boy. But your job as promo, like let's uh, as promotions director, coming up with all these things and not, and and making sure they're all on brand. Did your role change with the buy? Like, so you come in, Q one hundred seven comes in, and another promotions director who's quite brilliant, Darren Wozlick, comes into the building. So now you got these two like. And and you also get John Derringer coming into the building. We'll talk about egos and different people getting along or not getting along or whatever. I like I I, I think about what that was like. I was there. I can tell you on my own experience. What was the experience like, Jim? Were you there when that when this happened, or had you already left to because you moved on to become a pro, pro, program director? Yes, uh, maybe a year with Q and Mojo. I remember the Mojo launch yeah. and, and Q. Uh, so yeah, I was there for a little while having to move into one Dundas yeah. and it did was you, great. You got to remember how much beer money was being thrown around at this time. <laughs> right. And I really think beer money saved some of these rock stations. Right. Uh, you know, the sales department was awesome at, at sourcing it. And then you had Labatt and Molson who were going head to head, uh, with blind dates and, you know, go uh, to Antarctica yeah. to see Metallica. And they were just, they were throwing tons of money around. And so we're, I think we were able to separate our promotions pretty well between the two radio stations because we were finally able to, uh, program them complementary. It was all about men. But at least we had different slices of men, and if they drank beer, we're all good. Plus, the and record the record company still had tons of money, so yes. they were pre-Napster, left, right, and center. Yeah, you know, new metal had just died, so the rock was still going on. And then, but I think, I think when it all kind of changed, honestly, was nine eleven. As cliche as that is to say, that was kind of, in some ways, I think, like a turning point in in a, in a way of of thinking and what was important, what was not, and where people were spending money and where they were spending money and, and focusing on things. And I think that's when the stations just sort of started finding a bit of their own, their own path, if you will, from that point. And certainly Mojo took a hit after that. I, I would say the, the other thing, just um, uh, the people who were closer to the product, like the announcers and hosts and production and, and that, um, were I think probably had a little more of a... Um, a competitive edge with our, our brothers and sisters at Q. Um, uh, Darren Wozlick, who was the promotion director at Q for years, was the former promotion director at CFMY and the guy who hired me. Um, but we would work together on projects. They were targeting old guys. We were targeting young guys. Uh, we'd sell um, whatever the young guy beer was that year, and they would sell export. Um, so, you know... Um, while we were in the same building, um, it also allowed us to have more resources to use because we shared resources. Right. And you're with a bigger, you know, as, as the company got bigger, as Chorus got bigger, I think they got 39 radio stations now. But I mean, when Chorus first started, it was a lot less than that. I think they got a lot with WIC, right? So uh, those resources, when you say resources, what would, you know, are we, we're talking research money. We're talking, um, what are we talking with resources? Well, there's, there's some of that, Bob. Um, I would say uh, people. So you double your, your number of promo reps if you need extra promo reps or something. Um, you could go in and pitch on a project and take all the money from one company, whether it was beer or, right? Because Let's say we're both doing Metallica. Well, they give us two different Metallica projects. So they give us one for Q, one for The Edge. Um, they give a, one beer flyaway to Q, one beer flyaway to The Edge. But we would get all the advertising yeah, oh, money. Yeah. 
because we were we were brothers and sisters. So I would work, you know, we would do joint pitches. They, it, you pitch on all this money that you're trying to get, you pitch, right? You pitch and pitch and try and get the money. I mean, it's not out there anymore, but but when you were competing, like let's say, and, and we competed um, on, on the wall of men, which was we had men from 18 to 59. Um, so you'd have to get an awful lot of CHFIs together to get that kind of men representation, right? Absolutely. I, I I can remember it. And it was, what do we do with this other, I mean, not to get too in, much into the weeds here, but what do we do with this 640, which at the time was quite underperforming. And they really, the only asset they had was that they had the rights to the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? Like that's, and then that, that, that I think is its own episode of what was Mojo Radio. And, yeah. I, and the A4 mentioned Jamie Watson and how involved he was in helping to image that radio station and make it what it, what it was. I mean, out of the gate, his stuff was just brilliant, right? It was just amazing. And again, he's a guy that people who listen to radio, unless they're in the business, they don't even know he like they don't even know that that kind of guy exists. Um, it's uh, it that that's kind of the was the whole point of of getting you three guys together is to talk about all these things. And on a personal level in your career, Jim, it's during that time that the opportunity for you to to take the step from production into programming comes, right? Is it right around that same era? Yeah, yeah, it's about a year into that. We we got new equipment, built some new studios, and figured out sort of how the workflow uh, of creative and production uh, in promo would happen now with the stations. Uh, and a gentleman named Gary Wooden was doing a lot of the Q stuff and the and the Mojo stuff. Um, and it was it was a special opportunity because you don't get many program directors coming out of creative production. You know, usually you're an announcer, you're a music director, then you get into programming. And this the style and, and structure of the of the management of of the edge sort of allowed me to really learn uh, you know music uh, scheduling and, and meetings and music master and working very closely with. Phil, I had a great impression of, of promotions uh, and branding and marketing. And really, when you're when you're guiding voice talent in, in a studio uh, and you're looking for them to convey a message, it's not too far off guiding hosts on the radio who are curating a show and conveying that message as well. So I was able to sort of take that knowledge and, and yeah, become program director of F96 in London. Uh, a rock station then, uh, and then there was a top 40 energy 103. Um, uh, and you know, chorus at the time had all male stations. So when in London, we were able to say, okay, what are we going to build as a female station for chorus? And we built the fresh brand and I launched and, and built the first fresh brand, which I think fresh and then Q92 in, in Montreal were the only female skewed radio stations for the company for a while. I, I will say this. I don't think I ever told you this, but years, uh, years ago, uh, when I was working with Martin streak and, uh, he and I were shooting the shit one day. And I can remember him saying, uh, just randomly, we were talking about, and you reminded me of this because you talked about directing voices. And Martin was talking very, very highly about working with you as a producer. He said because he, he likened you to being a chef and as opposed to just throwing all the ingredients together and hoping what comes out on the other end is, is, is a tasty cake. He said, you always knew what you wanted the cake to taste like. And when he, when he worked with you, when he went into voice with you, because I've always picked everybody I worked with brain. When he went into the studio with you, you, he knew you would tell him exactly what you wanted. And he was very complimentary of that. 
Thank you. That's nice of you to say. Happy to do it. So, okay. So I guess was nobody there. Okay, Robbie, you would have been there. So how do you go back to 102.1 The Edge? <laughs> you're the, you're well, I, I, um, point, right. Phil, I just like Phil, you're, well, Phil, I, I, yeah, Phil, Phil left, Phil left right about the same time Jim did. And at about the same time, it was, it was around then. I was memory serves me correctly. Is that in true? 2000. Is that about 2001, 2002? Yeah, well, I, I right? left in 2002. Right. Uh, October of 2002, uh, November 1st, but. Jim, Jim would have been gone before then because I started that product, that creative director gig in the summer of 2002. So yeah, so, and, so Jim already leaves, you become. To, to yes, you I lured Jim back to be the MC at our wedding. I recall right. that. Yeah. That was a good time. <laughs> nice. That was uh, great time. Uh, good night. Um, I don't, be honest with you, Bob, I don't know why they went back because I wasn't. Can in I jump the zone in? of that, but Phil's probably got the right answer for it. Well, I I think I have an answer, and I I I think I saw the memo either before I left. Maybe they were starting to transition because I think been, yeah. by January two thousand and three they were one hundred two point one the edge in that in the growly text. Yeah, right? the growly text. Right, right. Yeah, you're right because it didn't it didn't the edge one hundred two era wasn't that long. It's like four, maybe, maybe four five years, four. maybe five years. Well, I was going to say that I, from from what I remember, and again, I may have just been leaving, or I may have still been on a distribution list. Um, <laughs> but I, I um, because I, I moved out to Vancouver to work for Chorus as well. Um, uh, so uh, Bookman and Marty would send me all the in, internal memos. Um, but I, I think I think this one is said we have realized that we've become too corporate in our look and feel, and we want to go back to some kind of uh, more of an organic flavor in how we present ourselves. And yeah, I, and I think I, that's, that's a good point. And I think that's when people really started referring to the station as the edge. What do you listen to? I listen to the edge or edge. I don't, you know, like it really stuck as the edge from that point in time. And I think what's interesting is that you have, you know, you go on your, you go on your face, Facebooks to your CFNY page and you, there, there was a, gr uh, this is going to get really inside baseball again, but there was a great post. Scott Turner puts a lot of posts up on the CFNY board on, on the edge. And somebody said, why are you posting all this stuff that wasn't CFNY music? Who the hell cares? Go back to the day, you know? And I and it reminded me of this conversation I had with Ivor Hamilton a number of years ago. Um, Ivor's a fantastic guy, as we all know. And and he was there during this, the Spirit of Radio days and, 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 and built that with Mars and it's, it's the legend that it was. And I said, Ivor, you built the 67 Leafs, Okay. With the edge, I feel like we built the 92, 93 era Leafs, you no know, close. Doug Gilmore era. We were close and we were great, but that's what people who grew up in that era remember. They don't remember the 67 Leafs, but they remember the 92 Leafs. Right. And, and I, honestly, I was only there for the last two years of the original CFNY, but that was the culmination of the station that broke new music in, you know, in the world. It, it mm. was the, they're playing, I don't. You wouldn't realize this now, but the first time you hear a B fifty two song without a tune guitars and 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 vocals is really weird. And that was the first taste I had of CF and Wine seventy eight or seventy nine. So groundbreaking music has always been part of what the radio station did. Yes, and you wouldn't have an edge without CF and Y. No, absolutely, you wouldn't have one without the other. I guess the the, the thing that annoys me them, if I want to put it that way, is when people say. Oh, the edge sucked. It died when it became yeah. the edge. The radio station went crap. 
I don't give that a lot of because because it feels to me like you're going after all the people who work there, and I take it a bit personally. It's like, look, we we all of the people on this call and everybody who was there at the time built one hell of a a, a legacy radio station and that continues on to today. The most successful iteration of it too on yes. that frequency. Absolutely, that era, the era we're talking about, the mid to late '90s, is probably the most when the station was the most profitable, had the be, you know had the and had the best the best numbers in its history, pretty much. You know, I, I would say when I tell people about the 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 time there, the people I know on the same timeline, um, I I felt I was doing God's work. I never looked for another job. I never looked for other things to do. Um, because we were doing God's work. And when that's a, not in literally, of course, but right. when, when, um, and I'm going to go to what we were talking about, about eliminating shows like live in Toronto and indie features and indie hours at 11. When, when we started eliminating that, that was when you started cutting the edges off the edge. It then, it, it was rounder. Like it was, uh, oh, what is it different about the edge? Oh, well, they play all today's new music. Oh, you mean like indie? Uh, oh, cool. Anybody else, yeah. But one, once you take the, the edges off, it's not the edge. And, and I go to this, that, that we lived it. We, we, were, we lived being at the edge. Like, and, and I don't know how much more to say. It's like being in a band, right? You lived, you lived it. I will it's, say that. it's a it's a very good point, Phil, that you say that there was no point in time where I, I myself thought I'm going to go look somewhere else. It was like what, this is the place you have to be. You, if there's any radio station in Canada you need to be at at this moment in time, it is right there. No, I still get favors based on my job twenty years ago to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I said on the uh, sound off podcast on Matt Cundell's podcast, going just to kind of close out the uh, conversation about the edge versus CFNY era. I, I was there during an amazing era. I was so lucky yeah. to be there when I was. And it was, it was exactly that. Humble and Fred, May Potts, Alan Cross, Brother Bill, Martin Streak. Like you, the list just goes on and on and on and on. All these great on-air people. Vishna taught me how to operate. And we had live. We, you know, she was an amazing announcer. She was our overnight announcer. And she was wonderful. But I, there's still an era. And, I, and, and Kundal kind of zoned in on this. But there was still a thing of, oh, man, you just missed it. You just missed the best era. You just we had so much fun before you got here you know like that that, that will, i think that exists everywhere not just at the edge and not just at cfmy i think in any yeah. job there is like oh man you don't know what it was like back in the day that it was awesome here i think that exists in almost any job you, you are right bob you did miss you just did miss the heydays exactly like we were but, just but saying no, the day before you started. Wow, those were the days. Those were the but, days. By the way, Phil, but, I have figured out. I have a memory, and uh, you were there when it went back to one hundred two point one, the edge. And I will tell you why I remember. We were okay. on. We were on a chorus boat cruise. Ironically, you weren't the captain, but we were on a chorus <laughs> boat cruise, and. I was at Mojo Radio at the time as the producer of the Humble and Fred show. And we gave away these windbreakers. Uh, and everybody got the windbreaker with their logo, with the logo, just a small logo. And it was Mojo Q and Edge One and 102.1 The Edge. And because I was DJing in the clubs uh, on the side at night, I was DJing at the Zen Lounge, uh, the old Zoo Bar on Queen West. And I was doing a whole bunch of actually with, with Lana Gay, who now is the afternoon show uh, host at, at Indie 88. Lana was the host. And we had a bunch of gigs. 
I traded somebody. I think I traded Kelly Cotrera, who was uh, leaving, uh, who was uh, for her 102.1 The Edge, and you gave me shit. You were like, no, you don't get to have that one. You don't work there anymore. You work at, you work at Mojo. But I wanted the 102.1 one because it was cooler to go into the clubs with. So you were there, and I have a very vivid memory of that conversation. I apologize. I don't mean to sound so harsh. Oh, it's, it's okay. It just scarred me for life. But I was doing God's work. It's right. <laughs> very important. Um, I, uh, I've taken up uh, well over an hour of your gentleman, you gentlemen's time. Um, How's this podcast going, Bob? How's the podcast world going? Tell me more about it. What are you hearing on the street? Well, let's talk about. All right, Robbie, uh, you are. <laughs> what is it called? Curious Cast. It's your. You work for the. It's under your company. Yeah, but <laughs> the company you work for. I, I know, but you don't. You don't entertainment. But, but I'm, I. You don't carry my podcast, so. <laughs> That's true. Talk to Dunner. He'll tell you. No, I know. Um, yeah, you're, yeah, no, you're no, podcast well, world working for Chorus again, though, right, Robbie? Yeah, I mean. I think one of the, okay, when I was um, asked to not come to work for a year and a half and get paid, when I was asked not to come to work, but still yep. got paid for a year and a half not to come to work, that was a pretty um, shell stock of a moment. You know, I knew it was going to come at some point, but it came in 2015. And, you know, I did a bunch of stuff here and there, but the one thing I didn't do was burn any bridges because I know this, this industry is very small. And I didn't know if I was ever going to come back to it or not. So I started doing some podcast work and stuff like that. And the weird thing is, is doing the ongoing history of new music since 95. That was like a podcast, only it wasn't a podcast, right? Because it was long form radio. So perhaps I owe Jim where I am now, because he's the one who forced, who, who had me doing all the long form programming, which is essentially what podcasting is. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so I, I, I came back to Chorus to be the lead sound designer, editor, head of the sound for the, the podcast division, Curious Cast. And one of the things that really attracted me about it, attracted me to it, was there was a business plan, an idea, and it was all modeled out. They knew exactly where they wanted to go. It wasn't just sort of a, yeah, we're going to give this podcasting thing a try and see how it goes. There had to be a focus and an idea and an objective to it. But what for myself personally was most rewarding is that I was being brought in for my expertise and my knowledge. To be, to be sought after for that was like, I don't remember having that feeling at any point really in my career to that magnitude of somebody sees the value, the absolute value in what I can bring to what it is they want to do. Yeah, and that, um, that's a huge motivator. It's, it's, a, it's a massive motivator and because they knew I would come in and Chris knew I would come in and just get on with it and get going with it. And what I love about it is every podcast I do, not episode, but every like show. Series. Series, thank you. Um, it's like its own radio station where I have to think about how it's going to sound, what the design is going to be, how it's going to evolve, how it's going to change. And every episode I do of that series or that show has to be better than the one before. So I'm constantly evolving as I go along. I'd like to go back and remix the first two seasons of a couple of our shows because I've evolved it since there. Yeah. Right? Because I want podcasts to sound... This is partially because it's under the umbrella, of course, is that it has to sound great. It has to sound exactly like when I was doing imaging and commercials for radio. It has to be the absolute best it can be for the audience and for people to listen to, right? 
So, so that's which kind lot, of which doesn't happen in a lot of podcasts. Well, it doesn't because it it's not it's not easy to do. And I've been doing my best. I've been trying. You know, last October or excuse me, uh, last September, uh, I had a contract that ended with Bell Media. Actually, Jim McCordy and I were were kind of coworkers for a little while there. Again, we met at some. Uh, we were on some calls together. And uh, Jim, you were last. You were a program director with Bell in Windsor, and uh, you've just started your own. You're doing some consulting now, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I worked three years uh, with Bell a year, uh, which is interesting because I, I worked for 89X, uh, which was one of those uh, modern rock sort of entities in Canada. There's the Edge and Fox and, and 89X. And 89X was great because it, it competed into the Detroit market. Uh, and, you know, the best thing about Windsor is Detroit. Uh, so having, having three years to, uh, to sort of live that, uh, and compete with market 11 in the States was, was awesome. And Bell made some changes and, and I find myself on the street again. Uh, so yeah, I launched AirCheck for You, which allows me to, uh, work with content creators and guide their content. Uh, you know, it's an interesting term when you get together there with a host or an announcer and radio and you check their show. Uh, but we also check, uh, podcasts and public speaking and, and really, uh, enable people to sort of guide their content to, to reach their audience. It's exciting because that is a whole new world where, you know, kind of feeding into what Robbie, Robbie J was just saying there. It was like of taking that idea of a podcast. I mean, basically everybody who, you know, has a microphone can have a podcast. We all have our own soapboxes now, but how you make it sound more professional, more palatable to the ear. There's so many levels to it. We're not just talking content. We're talking actual, the quality of the audio and, uh, and somebody with your experience definitely has all of that covered given, you know, your programming and your production background. So I, I good luck with that. I, I saw you post that the other day. It's really cool. I Thank always you. think in my mind, what would Phil Evans do? What would Phil Evans like? Because you know, the way he appreciates podcasts and the way he listens to them. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's what Phil says. Okay. If you want, so, Number one, it's not hard being on a podcast. Someone calls you up and you sit in a chair with a headphone. I don't know what the big deal is. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, before, I, I'm not going to go into deep critique. Hate compression. <laughs> you know that. I hate compression on podcasts. Um, the uh, EQ on inserted commercials is always off, volume levels. Like, no one plays their podcast commercials at the same level as their podcasts. Um, and I'm a super long form podcast listener. Mm. So um, uh, I, I listen every week by the, that's not exclusively, but that's what I like. I do listen to the ongoing history. I think that the, um, the way they work out is, is marvelous. And can I just, I'll just say something. I want to jump back to something about rounding the corners off. At one point, chorus stopped doing the ongoing history of new music which yes. was one of the things that defined the edge. Like it was built to define the edge and put context to the, to the, the stories of the music. Right. And you would know that Rob. Um, well, the, the funny thing was, is too, they wanted to keep it going. And I think they had bookie trying to do some dailies or some vignettes on it. And it was like, it, 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 it no disrespect to bookie, but it just won't work. It, people know it in Alan's voice and his writing and his style. So we actually took that show when we went up the street to uh, to Orbit, and, and they Astral. ran yeah, yeah. Astro, and they ran the um, Secret History of Rock for a hundred episodes. Wow! Right? Yeah, I, I'll say one one last thing about uh, the people of both CF and Y and the Edge is that I find that no matter where you are on that timeline, from I'm going to say when I started because that's where my timeline starts 
to mid-2000s first decade, um, everybody could relate to everyone else on the timeline. We all had a connection with the people on the timeline, whether it was Bookman or Alan or Rob or Jim, uh, 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 all the people there. You could connect with someone who had just moved in there and wasn't one of your former co-workers. Um, I don't have any much contact with them. I'm, I'm like, like everyone here, we're old guys sitting on a podcast. Um, but, um, but I believe for the longest time, uh, you were part of that fraternity or, or fraternity or sorority and that you all had something in common. It is, uh, uh, it is a unique station. It was a unique experience. I consider myself so lucky to have started my career at that radio station. Sorry, Rob, I'm just going to jump in while I can remember the line. As part of the branding process, we came up with a vision statement, which was um, a commitment to radio that embodies the spirit of innovation and adventure and progressiveness. And that's another one of those things that we use to measure what we did. Was it innovative? Was it progressive? Was it adventurous? Uh, man, I, I really want to work for a station like that now. I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to do it. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. We got to stop making changes. This has been Bob's Basement. Thanks for listening. Thanks, thanks. That's the way it is. For more information, email Bob at bobwillette at gmail.com. That's Bob Willett, like Gillette with a W. Follow Bob on Twitter at Bob Willett. Bob's Basement is available where you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time. Mm-hmm.